Alright, welcome to day 230 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in 2 Chronicles 10 through 12, Psalm 99, and 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 26. Okay, in 2 Chronicles 10, we are now into the reign of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and all Israel comes to Shechem to make him king. A lot of the events that we read about today, unsurprisingly, are... Uh, going to sound familiar from First Kings, but uh, I guess it doesn't hurt, right, to to review. This tends to be um, a portion of Scripture that a lot of people aren't familiar with, so I think, you know, going over it uh, more than once is kind of helpful. So um, we're told immediately about his rival, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Now, <clears throat> um, it doesn't tell us this here in Chronicles, but in Kings, it let us know that uh, it informed us that Jeroboam had been the head of <clears throat> the forced labor from the house of Joseph under Solomon, and um, and and at one point had been approached by the prophet Ahijah, who um, had condemned uh, the, the the worship of various um, deities in the. Um, in the reign of Solomon, because remember, he made those concessions for his wife. And so we know about the uh, worship of the Sidonian uh, goddess uh, Ashtoreth, who is um, also known in uh, Phoenician literature as Atheratu, uh, a goddess of war. Um, also Chemosh, the, uh, um, uh, the deity from, of Moabites, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And uh, Jeroboam is offered um, a dynasty and an enduring dynasty in the place of Solomon's son. And uh, so Solomon seeks to kill him and he flees to Egypt. But now Rehoboam has become king and Jeroboam has returned and, um, and he is present when Rehoboam is coronated at Shechem. And the people come to him. And they request that their uh, service, their obligations to the crown be lessened, uh, lighten the hard service of your father, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam needs three days to think. So he goes and he confers with his counselors, and he confers first with the older men. These are guys who had seen the kinds of things that, um, uh, the kind of dissatisfaction and the, the unworkability of Solomon's uh, lifestyle, the way that he administrated his kingdom, and they have they advised him to listen to the people. Uh, don't make as big of a deal about your building projects and the centralized government and everything, but uh, definitely lighten the burdens that have been on all of the people. And again, those burdens are more emphasized in Kings than they are in Chronicles. And then he goes to the young men, those whom he had known since his youth, and um, and they advise otherwise. Hey, are you king or not? Um, you got you to gotta tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Those are some serious sausage fingers there. But uh, you get the point, right? That it's going to, I'm actually going to increase this. I'm going to double down on my father's policies. Um, he disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. And that's what he comes um, to the people at Shechem saying, and not surprisingly, they reject him as king. And this whole thing is seen to be part of God's judgment, like God 
orchestrating these events. And I like the way that it puts it both here and in First uh, Kings. But you see here in verse 15 that it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that Yahweh might fulfill his word, which he spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. That, of course, again, being the prophet who um, prophesied that Je Jeroboam would, be the, um, would become the king over the ten northern tribes. Uh, that, again, is the, the ripping of the garment and giving him ten pieces. And so, um, and so the people are dissatisfied. They say, what portion do we have in David? Um, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Each to your tents. Look to your own house, David. So Rehoboam ends up, they leave, um, no longer submitting to him as king. And Rehoboam reigns only over the people of Israel who live in the cities of Judah. Um, although in chapter, I think it's 11, verse 12, uh, we see that Benjamin is also, yeah, it says that he held Judah and Benjamin. So Benjamin is actually there. So when we talk about the 10 tribes going to the north, um, that would be all of the tribes except for Benjamin. And um, yeah, so uh, Rehoboam reigns over them and he attempts to, I guess, reassert his power by sending the chief of his forced labor, Hadoram, um, whom the people stone. And so um, they are in rebellion against the house of David. And then in verse 19, we see that phrase that I've suggested several times now is an idiom to this day. So Rehoboam comes to Jerusalem. He assembles the house of Judah um, to fight against Israel. So there's an initial war. There's initial military conflict. He's not going to take this lying down. And so um, <clears throat> Yahweh sends um, a prophet named Shemaiah uh, to go and forbid him from doing this. And so this is the only thing that prevented basically an all-out war from breaking forth. Uh, God coming and saying, this thing is from me. Don't you dare do this. Um, and so Rehoboam then focuses on his own kingdom. He builds cities, um, defensive cities, and lists them there in, in verses uh, uh, 6 through 10 of chapter 11. He makes the fortresses strong, puts commanders in them, um, gives them food rations, as well as shields and spears. Um, in order to uh, basically stave off any threat that the now much larger northern kingdom would pose to him. Um, and uh, then in uh, chapter 11, verses 13 through 17, we're told something unique to uh, Chronicles, and that is that the priests and Levites um, who had been in the northern kingdom um, uh, in all the places where they lived, right? So they're, they're Levitical cities, including the cities of refuge, uh, Jeroboam, in, as part of his kind of like uh, religious, um, the, the way that his religious policy was to appoint non-Levitical priests to the shrines that he makes. So you might recall, Jeroboam does not want people going to Jerusalem to have to worship. And so he makes two major cultic centers and probably uh, more than this as well, but the two major ones in Dan and Bethel. And that's where he places golden calves. And you remember this becomes a huge issue throughout the history of the Northern Kingdom, a huge thing that is denounced um, pretty much ever since its inception. And, um, and he staffs those shrines with non-Levitical priests. And so those um, who are loyal and who don't want to have anything to do with this 
come to the South um, and um, and and had had set their hearts to seek Yahweh, God of Israel, and um, they come to Jerusalem to um, to serve there, and um, and this is a, a thing of great strength for Judah, um, and uh, for three years it says they made. Rehoboam the son of Solomon secure for they walked three year three years in the way of David and Solomon. Uh, speaking of walking in the way of Solomon, <clears throat> he uh, you know something we, we hadn't been told in Second Chronicles about um, Solomon's uh, massive harem, um, but we actually learn a little bit about Rehoboam's here. Um, 18 wives in total, uh, the two most prominent of whom are Mahalat, um, and who is a close relative of his, as well as Ma'akah, who is the daughter of uh, Avshalom. Um, and uh, from Ma'akah is born the one who will be the, um, the heir to Rehoboam's son, Abijah, and he intends to make him king. And uh, lest we think that Second Chronicles is totally going to shy away from the failures of the Judean kings, we are told in chapter 12 that when his kingdom was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of Yahweh, which, of course, it's, it's not that hard to imagine how that happens, right? Like when things go real well, we might uh, feel the tug to uh, be less concerned about the things of God, to ignore God and to stray from his ways um, before we know it, we are living in blatant sin. I, I often think about how God uses more turbulent times and more difficult times to draw us to himself. And so um, things going well in life are not necessarily uh, a marker of, of spiritual success and of, of, of spiritual strength. And certainly this is the case with Rehoboam. Uh, again, some details that we're told about in Kings that we're not told about here are things like his establishment of high places um, uh, and the um, the uh, uh, the worship of of Asherah becomes prominent during his reign, as well as um, individuals who um, may or may not be cult prostitutes, the Kadesh, or, uh, um, uh, as as they're called in Hebrew, the um, it's not clear whether a kadesh is a male cult prostitute or not, but there's some indication that it may be. Um, but at any rate, this is a part of his his uh, apostasy, his abandonment of Yahweh, and um, as part of the consequences of that, in the fifth year of his reign, um, because they had been unfaithful to Yahweh, uh, there is an invasion. Of the king by the king of Egypt. Um, this is uh, King Shishak or Shashank, as he's called in in Egypt. Uh, we know that this happened in about 925 BC, and um, in fact, um, Shishak or Shashank um, details this invasion in the Temple of Amun in Karnak, Egypt, in what's called the Bubasite portal. That's B-U-B-A-S-I-T-E. And um, he actually details like well over a hundred towns that he hits, um, many of which are Judean. And he comes up against him um, with um, aided by by an ar army uh, that is uh, reinforced by Libyans, the Sukim and the e Ethiopians. He takes the fortified uh, cities of Judah, 
um, probably some of the ones that we learned earlier that he had that Rehoboam had fortified, comes as far as Jerusalem, and um, uh, Shemaiah the prophet once again steps in. This is the guy whom we heard about earlier who who prevented Rehoboam from going to war against the north, and um, and tells him. Uh, you know, thus says Yahweh, you abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. And so then the princes of Israel and the king and Rehoboam humble themselves and acknowledge that Yahweh is in the right, Yahweh is righteous, and, and um, the word of the Lord again comes to Shemaiah, they have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. So the capital itself is spared. Um, yet nevertheless, they shall be servants to Shishak that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. Um, these, uh, it, not all the time, but a lot of times, um, the chronicler will note repentance that happens. Uh, again, probably the idea that like for when, when foreign armies come as part of God's judgment against his people. Uh, it's much more explicit about that. And then, it's, and then it will also mention um, if and when there had been repentance, it will note that. And so here we have Rehobo- Rehoboam and his, his chief princes and their, their repentance towards the Lord. Um, nevertheless, a lot of the riches that are taken, a lot of the gold that Solomon had um, stored up those shields that he had made are now um, are now replaced. Uh, they were shields of gold. Now they're going to be shields of bronze, and um, and um, but again, and again his repentance is noted in verse twelve. Again, when he humbled himself, the wrath of Yahweh turned from him, so as not to make a complete destruction. Moreover, conditions were good in Judah, and so Rehoboam reigns. His total reign is seventeen years. Um, and, but in general, his, his reign is evaluated negatively. He did evil and did not set his heart to seek Yahweh. Uh, we're once again told about some of these, um, other sources that, um, that can be, or well, could have been consulted back then, can no longer be consulted by us, but the chronicles of Shemaiah, the prophet and of Ido, the seer, which again, we've speculated may very well have been part of the source material for the books of Kings. And then uh, we leave off today with Abijah um, taking, taking the throne. All right, let's go now to Psalm 99. So um, sticking with some of the, these themes that we've seen in the Psalms recently, Yahweh reigns, and um, here the, this d- divine kingship that we've been seeing in uh, several of the places in the Psalms, like uh, Psalm 95.3, Psalm 97.1, um, uh, this this emphasizes God's kingship. So Yahweh reigns, let the peoples tremble. Uh, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. We've seen that that's language that's indicative of the Ark of the Covenant as his, as his throne, his royal throne. And let the earth quake. Yahweh is great in Zion, that is Jerusalem. He is exalted, but not, not only over Judah, but over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. So notice the emphasis here on God's power as well, as well as his holiness. So twice we have here, holy is he, kadosh hu, okay? Um, Also in verse 5, holy is he. Um, 
the king in his might loves justice, then this very much sounds like, again, it's talking about Yahweh um, as being king. You have established equity, you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Those are the things, of course, that are the responsibility of the earthly king, but the one who ultimately brings those things is the Lord. Uh, Exalt Yahweh, our God, worship at his footstool. Um, then we recount, you know, some of the righteous leaders in Israel from the past. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Of course, Aaron um, failing at that at some points, but nevertheless, um, Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. So these great names in the history of Israel, they called to Yahweh and he answered them. Um, so because they, they call upon his name, um, they call to him in prayer and he responds um, to them. In a pillar of cloud he spoke to them, he kept his, they kept his testimonies and the statute he gave them. So their faithfulness and the Lord is faithful to them. O Yahweh our God, you answered them, you were a forgiving God to them. So it's not as if they're, they don't do anything wrong, right? Forgiveness is, is part of that, this acknowledgement that, that, all, um, that all sin and um, but an avenger of the wrongdoings. Okay, all of them, uh, especially Moses and Aaron. Samuel's faults are less pronounced in the scriptures, but right, we think uh, it's not as if they were themselves were not accountable to the Lord. So Aaron, of course, with the golden calf, and Moses, of course, with the rock in the wilderness. Um, God did not leave them unaccountable for the things they did wrong, even though He is um, a forgiving God to them. Exalt. Yahweh our God, worship at his holy mountain, probably referring to Jerusalem, for Yahweh our God, and here we have it again, is holy. So celebration of God's righteousness, his justice, his power, his faithfulness to forgive, to respond to the prayer of those who um, keep his testimonies and statutes and call upon his name, and then ultimately his kingship and his holiness. All right, let's go now to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 26. So here now, Paul will turn to a new topic, another now concerning parade, and this time it is parade ton pneumaticon, now concerning the spiritual, okay? And here in verse 1, it's translated spiritual gifts, so like that's going to be the topic here. However, I think it's probably more accurate to translate this spiritual persons because it is distinct from the word that he uses to refer to spiritual gifts throughout here. That, uh, that term is charismaton, um, uh, charis being the Greek word for grace. So these are like grace gifts, okay, the, the gifts that he gives to individual Christians. Um, but here <clears throat> it's concerning the spiritual. And so... Um, I and, and if that is the case, that that is referring to people as opposed to the gifts that the people receive, then the idea is those who consider themselves to be super spiritual. And the reason, uh, as context will reveal to us, that they are considering themselves to be spiritual is because they are in possession of gifts that they see as being extraordinary, things that are um, pronounced that you look at and you say, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's impressive. Um, and so perhaps these people are becoming puffed up because they have been gifted with things that are extraordinary and um, more blatantly miraculous, we might say. 
as opposed to just everybody else who is, oh, you're good at hospitality, uh, you're, you're good at teaching, huh, well, um, have, you know, have you had these great spiritual experiences? No? Well, then talk to the hand, you know, kind of like that kind of attitude, perhaps. Um, and um, so he, 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 he tells him, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant about how to think uh, through the, con- the issue of God's gracious gifts to us. So he says, when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols, however you were led. So um, obviously the Corinthians have a, have a large number of Gentiles in their church, and that's what he's referring to there. And, um, uh, and, but, but now things are diff- different for you because you're in the body of Christ. And I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So nobody can can truly confess Jesus is Lord unless the Spirit of God has worked in them. And nobody says Jesus is accursed unless the Spirit of God is in them. And so, like, the, the primary thing to remember here is that um, those who hold to this central confession of Jesus is Lord have the Holy Spirit and... And, and that's, that's what matters. How the Spirit manifests itself in your gifting is secondary, okay? This is the, this is the important thing, that you realize Jesus as Lord. And so there are a variety of gifts, Paul says, but it is the same Spirit, right? You're all equal because of your confession of Jesus as Lord, um, but you get different gifts, and but you get them from the same Spirit. It's not like um, there's there's no difference between you and others. It's just that the Spirit chooses to give one thing to one person and another to another. Um, there, um, So uh, it is the same God who does all of this. Uh, so there's a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. So you shouldn't see your gifts as something that makes individuals great. You should see this as God working uh, working in his church, working among us um, by by choosing to give some things to some people and some things to others. Um, uh, so to each and and so not only is the the fact that uh, you know this is this is the one spirit giving all these things to us, the other thing is that the things that he does give are for the common good, therefore the the building up of the church, they're for everyone. And so who are you to take this gifting and make yourself something something great because of it? Um, to one is giving through the Spirit, and here we have some of the gifts mentioned, an utterance, the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. Notice the emphasis on the sameness here, the sameness of us in Christ. To another gifts of healing by one Spirit to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Um, Now, a couple comments here on some of these gifts. Um, uh, One that kind of sticks out to me as particularly interesting is the the gifts of healing. Notice the plural there, um, which... Uh, some have suggested, and I think perhaps correctly, um, suggests that this does not um, 
uh, indicate like an, a permanent endowment on a person of just an extraordinary ability to heal. Like, you know, this person is a healer. And so when they pray for healing, the Lord answers them more than he would answer other people. The fact that it's plural here um, sounds like these are isolated kind of incidents as opposed to like a gift of healing that's on someone. Um, so like, you know, I, I pray and someone gets healed. That is a gift of healing. You pray and someone gets healed. Um, that is another gift of healing. These are the gifts of healing as opposed to one who has a gift of, um, uttering wisdom or uttering knowledge, um, or extraordinary faith. You know, those are things that are given to people that people kind of possess, whereas these healings seem to be, um, it, it sounds like it refers to individual instances of healing. And, um, uh, uh, you know, the, and these are things that are still active in the church today, right? Like anybody who prays for physical healing is acknowledging that God still works this way in the church. Um, we've seen how prophecy uh, works in the New Testament, where, you know, you have the exa examples, for example, of uh, Agabus in the book of Acts, um, uh, very similar to the kind of thing that it was in the Old Testament, where it is God speaking through a person. Um, uh, ability to distinguish between spirits, perhaps this is a, a, a level of discernment. People are particularly discerning about, about spiritual matters. Um, and then tongues, now, there will be a lot more to say about tongues as we go through these chapters, um, but uh, for now, I want to say that, um, remember when we were back in Acts chapter 2, and we asked the question about, like, what exactly is this? And Luke gives a pretty good description of what was meant by tongues, right? Where the apostles start speaking uh, in languages that they didn't previously know. Um, and that's the best thing that we get towards a definition of tongues in the New Testament. Then, right, because throughout the book of Acts, then when, when we see this happening, and it's not a ton, but we see it occasionally, um, it's not redefined. And of course, I, th I think healthy interpretive practices would, would have us say that, okay, well, it's the same thing we read about in chapter 2. And now consider that Luke is a close associate with Paul, and Paul doesn't define what he means by it here either. And so... Again, I think, I think wise interpretation should have us lean towards understanding this being the same kind of thing that we saw in Acts chapter 2, both the speaking of tongues and then the interpretation of tongues, ability to understand the things that are being said. Um, all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. Again, that's the main point of this paragraph, that it's the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the sameness and the sameness in the Spirit. Note this emphasis once again on unity, on avoiding divisions in the church, especially here divisions based on spiritual gifts. Like, here are the super spiritual because these guys do things that, like, you know, uh, are blatantly miraculous. You even have the miracles mentioned as a gift here as well, the working of miracles. Um, so, and it's up to the will of God to whom he gives what. Uh, then in verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, okay, so think of your body, and obviously the metaphor here is the body of Christ, but you've got hands, you've got fingers, you've got kneecaps, you've got uh, toenails, um, and all the members... Uh, all, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. OK, 
okay? Um, so we're all different. If we're members of the body of Christ, uh, we are all different. Um, for in one spirit, and there we have it again, we were all baptized into one body, okay? So uh, here referring to Christian baptism, and when you are baptized, you are it, baptism, you know, uh, signifies a bunch of things, such as our union with Christ, but it also um, signifies our union with the body of Christ, our togetherness. You are of one body with all others who have been baptized as well. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of the one Spirit. So here we have the Spirit being given to all at the time of baptism, as we see in the book of Acts. Um but the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Like we're not all just a nose, okay? And so two implications from this. Uh, and the first is all throughout this, this, this first paragraph here in chapter, in verses 14 through 20. Uh, so how do you view yourself? So the foot shouldn't look at himself and say, oh, I wish I were a hand. And because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, okay? And the ear shouldn't be like, oh, I wish I was an eye, um, and I, but I'm not, so I guess I don't belong to the body. So no one should say, well, I don't have that gift, so like I belong in the body of Christ less. You know, it, it's, it's against disparaging of the, the, the roles and the position that, that the Lord has given to you. No, this is a gift of God's grace as well. Um, and God arranges the members of the body as he chose, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, again, if all were a foot or all were an eye or all were um, a, 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 a left nostril, um, uh, where would the body be? There are many parts, yet one body, right? We all have a role to play in the body of Christ, and we should all be one because Christ has made us one. And so then, so that that's very much like how you view your own self and perhaps struggling with maybe dissatisfaction at, at, at where you are in the body of Christ um, the, it also spills over into how we look at others, which is the focus now of that second paragraph, 21 through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, so notice it's not speaking to itself now, it's speaking to the other parts, I have no need of you. Okay, so um, one person who has one gift can't say, ah, you're less important, we don't really need you here. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And he says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Um, and notice he's, he's, he has applied this phrase to those who have weak consciences. He might have that in mind here as well. Um, but they're actually quite necessary. And they're not necessary. Some have suggested that the necessariness of the weaker parts is because it gives the others opportunity to display love and grace and patience. But that's kind of like the condescending, right? Like your only part of the body is for other people to learn how to tolerate you or something, right? No, Paul's point here actually seems to be that like we all have positive contributions to make. Like there's important reasons why all of us are part of the body of Christ. Um, so on those parts of the body of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Okay, I think here those two groups, right, less honorable, unpresentable. I think what he's referring to is the same thing by both of those, and um, it's 
fairly clear that he what he means here is actually a reference to private parts okay so right you you cover those so that's you know that those are your less honorable parts you're going to show them off less in public your unpresentable parts you're going to show them off less in public um but god god does it differently than this right god so composed the body to give greater honor to the part that lacked it now think about the issue in Corinth, right? Corinth is a very socially stratified city, and Paul's concern is that a lot of that social stratification is bleeding into the church. And so the more honorable members of um, of society might be the freedmen, those who had served in the military, those who had position within the city, right? Like those are the parts of, the, of honor. And it's wrong for them to be like, well, we're going to be kind of like the face of the church or we're going to be like the public image of the church where all these slaves who come or, or all these, these, these day workers and, 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 you know, less prominent people, they're the ones like they can come, but um, they're not going to be the ones who are invited to speak. They're not going to be the ones that we really, you know, let, let, let face the world. And Paul's like, no, God actually gives greater honor to the part that lacks it. Remember Jesus, um, his teaching on servanthood, right? That the, the greatest among you is the one who serves Jesus himself, washing the feet of the poor. Like, and that's the thing that he wants, that Paul wants the Corinthian church to be reminded of, that there be no division in the body, that you don't say, oh, because some of us are higher socially, we're... Uh, more honorable or, 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 or like more essential of a part of the body, um, but rather that the members may have the same care for one another. So we're, we're all in this together, That which means if one of us suffers, all of us suffer together. And if one of us is honored, all rejoice together. All right, that's it for today. As always, I thank you for being with me, and I look forward to being with you again tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.